Good evening, wherever you are. Thank you very much for joining us on the Just Like the Movies podcast for our 69th episode. And for Ah, <laughs> uh, the 69. You think it's cool when you're young and then you get older and you just want to focus on the job at hand. At least that's how my perspective on the whole thing evolved. But in any event, this isn't some half-assed mutual oral sex podcast. We're actually talking about <laughs> one of the lesser-known... And uh, lesser, well-received, and uh, poor, poor, more poorly financially performing, maybe the worst of his catalog, uh, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, Jesus which was, Christ. yeah, I'm really doing a great sales job on I go from talking. Hey, keep to- listening, though. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It just means that for whatever reason, it misfired. Um Commercially I- and somewhat critically, I mean, but... Uh, I had my own experiences with the Grindhouse uh, double feature experience. We'll talk more about that later. But uh, yeah. as always, at, since he selected the movie first, we always got to ask Johnny how he's doing. And then we'll uh, we'll see where he wants to start with this movie that he picked. Better than the Yankees and almost better than the New York Giants. <laughs> who uh, somehow uh, stopped people from jumping off of uh, a bridge by coming back against the Arizona Cardinals and their seventh string quarterback. So, um, I, yeah. And, and you're, you're a chiefs fan, but the thing about Mike being a chiefs fan is he's been, he's like the chiefs for a very long time. This isn't one of those, you know, you just Mahomes shows up and all of a sudden you're buying jerseys and doing a, a chop, uh, <laughs> chant. So, um, but so good for you and good for your team. The reigning champs as, as my team is trying to, fight their way back into relevancy you, man you want to talk about like taking the wind out of the sails man you like completely reframed that awesome comeback win it's like and now i'm like ah, that wasn't that impressive now that i think about because <laughs> i uh, it, it was a great well because any football game like they say any given sunday or monday or thursday sometimes saturdays <laughs> uh a team you know can be better than you but coming down from 28 points no matter who you're playing is an achievement because there is a clock and people can run the ball and there's only a certain amount of time you have to play with um but nonetheless um yeah dude death proof i hope with this movie that there's um a portion of our audience who maybe hasn't seen it uh it flew under the radar with them they missed this one uh, or they just like skipped over it because of what they heard about it and with the double feature and the grindhouse stuff. But I really think if people like anything Tarantino does and they haven't seen this yet, I think they will like this. So I hope at least part of the reason why doing this podcast, but also this particular movie, is to turn people on to this. Sort of like you did with The Raid, I would say. Um, so I this is one of my favorite Tarantino movies. I absolutely love this movie for so many reasons um and we'll get into it but you know the number one reason is because it's starring kurt russell (laughs) yeah and it it could have easily been any number of other actors that that uh quentin tarantino was considering i guess he said on the joe rogan podcast a few years ago he said he really had his heart set on mickey rourke and but mickey rourke's agents were like fucking around trying to get him the best deal trying to wring every dollar out of it and quentin tarantino kind of realized what was going on and then he decided to in his words 
Uh, he said that he thought Kurt Russell hadn't been a badass in a long time. He thought there was like a generation of people, of uh, moviegoers who didn't remember what Kurt Russell is capable of because he'd been playing so many like blatant face characters like the coach and Miracles. Miracle, sorry, and uh, others. But um, the funny thing is I don't really agree with that assessment of the stuntman Mike character that he was a badass. Like, I just, I, I don't know if he was just speaking more figuratively or whatever, but, um, and I don't want to get too bogged down with that. But, uh, I mean, right. one of the prob- the one of the few problems I had with the stuntman Mike character is because Kurt Russell, as always, is, a, is just a pleasure to watch. But, yeah. like, the whole... Consummate thing- professional. <laughs> But, like, even, like, long in the tooth, Kurt Russell is an eight and a half. Like, I don't know why you'd put him in a movie and then, like, this girl's, like, bad-mouthing him. And he's like, I can hear you. I can still... And if, like, but if you put Mickey Rourke in that part, it kind of makes more sense. Hmm. Yeah, I... I am hit and miss with Mickey Rourke. I'll say that. I... I don't like his whole, like, shtick. Um... Almost sort of like how I'm, I've kind of soured on like Johnny Depp, you know, trying to be like a musician now and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't even like plug his guitar in. Um, but Mickey Rourke and like all the plastic surgery and like he's walking around, he sort of looks like this weird old woman and he's supposed to be like this muscular guy, but he's got these chicken legs and he's carrying like a little dog around with him. I, and then like <laughs> some of his performances, like, yeah, I like some, I don't like others. Like the wrestler was fine. I actually thought he did a good job in the first Expendables with that monologue he had uh, for citing recent things. But I didn't like, you know, his Russian in Iron Man 2. And then you can go back to, you know, the good-looking days before he was boxing and, and get into those types of movies. But uh, I, I don't... I, you know me. When it comes to this, you've heard me say that I thought Kurt Russell would be a good Han Solo. So if I'm going to say that knowing Harrison Ford was Han Solo, it's hard for me to look at this list of prospective people that could have played stuntman Mike and have wanted one of them to play him over Kurt Russell. Yeah, there were some real weird ones in there. Like Cal Penn. Ah, man. If that's even real, uh, I probably would have hated the movie. (laughs) I I think 51% of why I love this movie is at least Kurt Russell. At least 51%. And the only thing I was saying about the Mickey Rourke casting would have been that he would have had a more off-putting appearance, which I think would have made it more believable as opposed to taking handsome-ass Kurt Russell and just putting, like, a big fake scar on one side of his face. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, you think, like, if they, like, marved him up, like, in Sin City and just made him, like, really gnarly looking? They wouldn't even have had to do that. He would have just showed up and just been like, okay, no makeup, just go. <laughs> just looks like a melted candle. You know, not like I'm a fucking Ford model or anything, but I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You don't look like a wax figure that's been under a torch and then uh, attempted to be reassembled, though. Yet. <laughs> we have time, folks. We have time. Yeah, I still got like Plenty 10 years. To look yeah. Like that. Yeah, so... So this list, I'm seeing... I saw, like, two different lists of prospective actors. Yeah, so like Travolta, real, Stallone, John Malkovich. Like. Ving Rhames. <laughs> Ving Rhames. He, like, puts... He puts uh, Rose McGowan in the car, <laughs> and he puts that tin chair into the hole, and he's like, we have the seat. 
so sorry. This car really is death proof. But to get the benefits, you really have to be in my seat. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't yeah, dusted do, that one off in a while. Do the tagline real quick. <laughs> we have the meats. There we go. <laughs> Arby's, sponsor this fucking podcast. Yeah, dude, I eat there like three times a month. Please. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I went to Arby's for the first time in well over a year, like last week. Uh-huh. I went with Johnny, and we went like mini golfing. And so what we did, he he had already eaten lunch, so what I did was I gave him a bunch of my fries, and then it was it was beef and cheddar time for daddy. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah so it wasn't bad though yeah dude i mean i like i as far as fast food goes i enjoy arby's i i think like one of the things that john stewart did was he made it like really fashionable to bash arby's Mm -hmm. like i yeah i I don't know i don't agree like i i eat a ton of fast food and i've like almost never had like a bad arby's experience i've never gotten sick from there like i've gotten sick from lots of other places and that's like the joke about it but i digress People are like, yeah. what? It's like, you guys have been talking for 10 minutes. You've been talking about Arby's and mini golf. And fucking, like, when are you going to talk about death proof? It's like, we have well, a little bit. Yeah. So, you, you know, to talk about, you know, there's a bunch of Easter eggs and stuff in this movie. But one oh, I ton. did not. Absolute yeah, ton. One I did not know was that they have the shirt from Big Trouble in Little China on the wall. Yeah, I didn't spot that either. Like, I... And then some of the stuff I didn't know, like the stuff about the license plates, like how the license plates from the cars were from other famous movies, like Bullet and that Dirty, Dirty, uh, what is that? I can never get that right because I've never seen it. The movie, I think Peter Fonda's in it. Dirty, Dirty Larry, Crazy Mary, or something like that. Yeah, that was the yeah. license plates on the two cars. Like one of the things I picked up on was that, like uh, Quentin Tarantino, kind of some of his shameless callbacks to his own dialogue like when they're doing the round of shots and he goes he said post time and and that's from from dust till dawn and then he said that's a tasty beverage and it's like man he's just doing he's like doing like little callbacks to his own i I don't even know if it was done intentionally but when you look at some of the details in this movie that were, were included it's like you have to think kind of that he kind of included that stuff to be kind of uh, meta references to his own work and i yeah. guess the jungle julia character it's the same thing there were references to another jungle julia dj in, in, in movies he either acted in or wrote yeah and it, you know his brands like uh, red apple cigarettes and the big kahuna burger are both referenced in this movie mm-hmm. Um, sort of like how Kevin Smith, Kevin Smith and, and Tarantino run on parallel lines. So there's a lot of similarities in between how they operate. Uh, I think one is more successful than the other, of course. But uh, I always find that uh, there are similarities between the two. But yeah, um, so the shirt, I guess, is in the bar and it's hanging like just above uh, Jungle Julia's head. And it's the tank top that he wears in the movie. That's pretty funny. Uh, yeah. And... I'm sure there's a bunch of other references and, and, and stuff like that that, you know, we make we may cross or we may not on this podcast. But I think, Mike, what I dig about this movie is um, and maybe let's start here because it is a very unique movie theater experience that people can't uh, go back and revisit now. Because yeah. Of the one I, shot. Even even if the movie came back out, I don't think they would do it in the way they did with both Grindhouse, Planet Terror, the the fake intermissions and then death proof 
And I did see this in the theater, and I believe you said you did too, right? Yeah, I thought it was yeah. awesome at the time. Me too. And, and I like I saw it with two of my cousins that I used to go go out with all the time, and we would watch movies, and we'd go get dinner and like talk about them. And um, we had so much... Like, it's not like... We knew that like the movies we saw like didn't... They weren't like hardcore classics or anything like that. But it was... The whole experience was so much fun. And yeah. we just couldn't... Ra That's why I was so surprised when it didn't do well. Like, the, the reviews were middling, and then it ended up losing a bunch of money. And then, so what ended up happening was in the international markets, they released the movie separately, and they did the mm -hmm. extended versions, and they cut the, the fake uh, commercials and the fake trailers, which all contributed to the experience. But... And then the, the international run kind of uh, validated the general consensus as well as your opinion because Planet Terror did a lot worse separately than it did with um, Death Proof in its international right. run. But, yeah, yeah I mean, it was one of those things where I... I, um, I And I didn't really know anybody else who had seen it besides you, but I don't think we ever really discussed it. And then... But the people that were in the theater seemed to really be enjoy, like be enjoying it, and there was like a lot of positive like buzz around it and word of mouth. But it just didn't translate to any kind of success. I saw one thing where a guy wrote that he thought that's what would have happened if if Tarantino got his way and released both Kill Bill movies as one movie. He, uh, hmm. I don't like. I think that's a little bit of a reach because that's yeah. that's not a concept. It's just like a really long movie. Right, yeah, which he could have split up as a double feature or whatever. But yeah, so for people who don't know, like this came out and it was called Grindhouse. And it was a double feature, two different directors. Uh, and the first one was Planet Terror, which was more of this uh, apocalyptic zombie horror movie, which was starring Rose McGowan as this woman who gets her leg ripped off by zombies and then they attach a machine gun to her leg and then she becomes like this heroine uh throughout the film and you know bruce willis is in it with like a melting dick <laughs> and and it's so funny because i remember i remember seeing that movie vividly uh and it was like man spring 07 it comes out and i'm on i'm on a rebound off of a breakup and i may have had you know an encounter that i may not have been super responsible about and then i'm sitting there watching bruce willis with his dick melting off and i'm like oh my god that's me <laughs> oh, no i didn't know that but i but guess it that's turns not out, something you really share at the time it it for this audience i do <laughs> but as it turns out everything was fine so wow. yeah thankfully yeah the uh yeah, the bullet was not in that chamber uh, on my Russian roulette <laughs> round. Um, but yeah, and then I remember watching that, seeing the trailers, and I don't want to get into the whole Grindhouse thing because we're here to talk about Death Proof, but I think it is important to talk about the experience because it's like one of those, you either were there at the right time and you got to see it or you didn't. And I think it's sort of one of those things that is a little bit of a flex, especially for Tarantino fans and maybe people who are younger than us that are getting into Tarantino be like, I saw a Grindhouse in the theater, both movies. And it's like we have one of those like old man flexes, which is kind of cool to have. Yeah, yeah. Plus, it's also in this time, 
it's it's unique because it's like you can't just go and find it. It's like right. when, it's like when you remember some old school media reference, and for whatever reason, you can't find it on YouTube or you can't find it. You like you can't find the video of it anywhere, but it's like you remember mm-hmm. it, and other people do too. And it's like something that because it's like information's more accessible now than it's ever been. And especially now with all this bullshit marketing talk about how people are willing to spend money on experiences. And this was like a very, this was a very experiential trip to the cinema. It was very immersive. Like even if you're not, and and I'm not going to misrepresent myself because I don't know about you, but I, I'm not really that well versed in the whole exploitation genre. Like I've seen a few films here and there, like a few black exploitation films, a few of the like slasher films, giallo films, all that stuff. But I've never, like, I'm not like a encyclopedia of it or anything. But when I saw the movie, like you knew what they were trying to do. And yeah, hundred percent. And I don't, I don't like to play that card. Like, well, people didn't realize what, what they were trying to do. It's like, they just didn't go and watch it. Like they saw the trailers right. and they just weren't interested. They saw like, they saw a girl like, propelling herself in flight with a grenade launcher that was attached to her leg or like that looks stupid which yeah you can't on one hand you can't blame people for but on the other hand if you put it in its proper context it's like oh this is gonna be ridiculous it's gonna be fun it's gonna be you know it's gonna remind you of the of that time gone by when they made movies like what the roger corbins of the world were making movies on these shoestring budgets and making them really just violent and kind of cheesy because like a lot of times there wasn't time to do things right or to do things perfectly right but i digress. yeah no that's a good point and i i think you make a good point in saying that it wasn't a thing where oh people just didn't get it it was ahead of their time and it wasn't it's because it's a throwback it's actually the, the opposite of that um but and i don't get too hung up in box office and stuff like that because i did you know some like lookbacks and like you know like Jackie Brown didn't make a ton of money I think he made like 70 million dollars and like obviously Reservoir Dogs didn't make a lot of money and you know he did have some movies I think I don't think Glorious Bastards or Pulp Fiction is probably his highest but probably at like two something you know he never Quentin Tarantino's not making billion dollar box office movies right and that's that's no indicator of objective quality and I don't think, I mean, not to speak for him, but based on what we know of him and him in interviews and stuff, like, he doesn't give a shit about that. Like, he wants to make movies that he would want to go see. Uh, a lot of his stuff is way out there. He, he's not a wide net guy. Like, you're not going to see Quentin Tarantino doing a major IP. You're not going to see Quentin Tarantino. Like, when I heard the rumors of him doing Star Trek. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. He's not doing Star Trek. <laughs> that would be a disaster, I think. Yeah. Like, so he's not like a, a wide net reach mass audiences type of person. He makes movies that are usually critically acclaimed, usually very unique, but also with varying uh, hints of uh, nostalgia for him to the era he loved watching movies yeah yeah i would agree with that i just uh i think with him though that the, the only thing i would add to that is that a director's concern is that they don't lose money too much money too many yes. times because then right. they're not going to get any more opportunities to make movies but quentin tarantino's been pretty vocal about how he wants his 10th movie to be his last one i find that so hard to believe um you know it's not like he's 80 you know, he's still got enough in the tank, but you know, whatever he decides to do is what he decides to do. But for, for this movie in particular, I kind of like it because 
It feels like the Tarantino movie that may not get invited to all the Tarantino movie parties. Like the like all the other Tarantino movies get together every once in a while to hang out and they don't like to call Death Proof because it's just not cool enough or something. I something about this movie aside from Kurt Russell I enjoy is obviously the car chase at the end. Uh, over 20 minutes long and as authentic as it gets because Zoe Bell, who is uh, a lot of notoriety for being a stunt woman in Hollywood, uh, New Zealander, she you know, plays herself, so to speak, in this movie, which is cool enough as it is, and then does her own stunts, even when Tarantino himself, Mr. Authentic, was like, uh, maybe we should grab someone for some of these shots here. And she's like, no, because normally it'd be me doing stunts for Reese Witherspoon or something. And <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my job here. Yeah. So she was an absolute delight in this movie, by the way. Incredible. Like I incredible. remember, I remember when I was in the theater and the big, now granted when I, I only saw this movie in the theater and sometime last week for this podcast. And I had never rewatched it for any reason, even though I enjoyed the grindhouse concept tremendously. <laughs> I never really revisited those movies separately because uh, this is, I, I hope this doesn't sound like too like wankery, but like I just that was just a like a perfect capsule in time experience, and I just didn't want to see the movie separately. I just it just wasn't a priority for me. But so on the rewatch, what did you think? Um, so there was about an extra twenty or twenty five minutes of footage that I did not see the first time around. And I think some of that footage slowed the movie down. I think it kind of took away from the grindhouse effect a little bit. Like having the lap dance scene be included instead of having that gag with the missing reel. So it's like, it, which is kind of like the um, the orgasmo bit where every time you think you're going to see some boobs, there's a dude's ass that comes into the frame, like just to subvert <laughs> those uh, kind of salacious expectations. Like that, that, so that creates its own humor. Um, right. You definitely see the Tarantino brand of film. Like, it's just a lot of talking. Like, a lot of talking. And for some reason, when I was watching it, I just didn't have a lot of patience for it this time around. But it did serve a purpose in certain aspects. Like, when they're, you know, they're at, when you deal with the second group of girls, um, which Zoe Bell is in, and they're telling the story about how. Um, it's going to all circle back to what I was saying initially, I promise. But they're all telling the, the story about how she fell in a ditch and she like landed on her feet because she always lands on her feet. And then they have this moment where you think she fe she got thrown from the hood of the car and she's dead and you don't know if like, they think she might be dead. Like you don't know what was in front of her. There's just these high weeds. And then she just pops up and goes, I'm okay. And the whole yeah. theater was dying laughing like <laughs> when I saw it. And yeah. it was, it was just like, but yeah. she was really good in it, I thought. She was very good and not even just the stunts, of course, but like she was very believable in her fear and, and a lot of the elements that she brought to the table. So I was pleasantly surprised. I didn't know anything about Zoe Bell before Death Proof. And then you hear like all the types of movies she does. And, you know, she's a stunt double for a lot of famous actors. And uh, mm -hmm. stunt people don't always get the credit they deserve, honestly. They certainly but, don't. But... I, so out of the two casts of the ladies, which pairing did you enjoy watching uh, more? Um, definitely the second one. I thought the first group of chicks was like kind of awful, and <laughs> you would you you would have wanted to get us out of that bar as soon as possible if we were there in that environment. 
<laughs> right? That's sad but true. It, you it, would have been outside hammering camels and being like, I can't wait till my friends realize they're not getting laid tonight. We can just fucking go home and get cheeseburgers. I really appreciate that assessment. Like, I wish I could say I'd be cooler about it, but I've been in tons of situations like that where I'm like, these girls are so annoying. Like, this isn't even worth it. Yeah, yeah. And some photographs come to mind. But, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> anyway... Uh, this isn't exactly a walk down memory lane for us here, but, um, yeah, I, I don't, I think I would say the second group too, for sure. Um, but I did like elements of the first group as well because of what it allowed us to find out about stuntman Mike. First off, uh, I did like Rose McGowan's, uh, character's brief part in this movie as well. Um, and that was my favorite part in the movie that, um, you brought up about, you know, which way you going, uh, Pam. And she said, we're going right. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's too bad because we're going left. And that, 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 that whole, that moment, because, you know, we sort of know it's coming, but she doesn't. So she thinks, like, she's genuinely just in this moment being playful and fun. Like, we're going right. And, and then all of a sudden everything turns on a dime. Where for the audience, we're like, oh, we see this here. We know it's coming. She doesn't. So then we like get the POV from her seat, which Tarantino loves doing, looking up at Stuntman Mike. And all of a sudden, Kurt Russell doesn't look like the 8.5 anymore. He's, he's, he looks uh, lifeless and soulless. And it's it's dark. And then we see how violent it gets and what happens to her. And there's something about a slow death. I've said this a lot on this podcast. There's something about a slow death in movies that really messes me up, man. More than like someone just getting decapitated or something. Like seeing someone slowly having their life being taken from them and there's nothing they could do about it is so fucking horrific. Yeah, I mean, oh, I'd be a little worried about you if you said, yeah, you know, I really like just a long, drawn-out death. Like, No, uh, no, that's why it was my favorite part because I think it messed me up so much. It was like, that, like it, it's that, it's the iconic, like, horror movie line of like sort of like in scream where it's like i want to know who i'm looking at like th those types of moments that was this movie's moment for me where he's like oh well that's too bad because we're going left it's like oh shit and the music shifts a little bit um i i just really like that that whole moment because also like you said for a lot of people they don't re really remember kurt russell playing this type of role and uh they got to see him in full uh psychosis and menace yeah, showing a little more range, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's also funny because he's in that bar and he's got his, like, you know, his jacket on and he's just hammering these nachos. And for whatever reason, Tarantino's like, we need to zoom in on his mouth as much as possible here. And it's, like, kind of gross and disgusting and stuff. And then I just I realized on one of the signs it says half-price nachos. So, like, not <laughs> only is he – not only does he like murdering women and gets off to murdering women – the guy likes a deal. <laughs> there were all kinds of little details. Like, I, I, I read this, but I didn't spot it. Like, you could... Because I wasn't entirely... I guess it's not that important, but... Like, when you had the pictures of the girls, it was like, how long was he stalking them? Because apparently, yeah. I thought they, like, came from out of town to visit their friend in Austin. So it was like, how long was he stalking them for? And then, yeah. I, I guess with the second group of girls, he's actually in the diner that they're in when they do that really long take where they're talking for like eight minutes or something. He, you could see him in the background eating. 
but they and don't. The first group they, of girls is in Texas, I believe, Austin, Texas. Yeah, it's in Austin, but like, didn't <laughs> didn't the friends come from out of town to visit Julia? Like that was the whole thing. Uh, well, what, yeah, you might be right because you know our lead's not from from there. Not with that fucking no. accent. No, she isn't. No, she is not. I I, I feel like Arlene was your girl. So you're, you're you're no no. Not a fan of Butterfly? Nah. I thought she was pretty annoying, but that's just me. They did have the cribble... That group of friends who kind of flew under the radar was, I thought, the the always very underrated Jordan Ladd, who was... Absolutely. Who was in uh, Club Dread and waiting. Cabin Fever. What? Cabin Fever as well. Oh, yeah. Cabin Fever. Uh, Which was also an Eli Roth movie. Am I... I, No, no, you're correct. Yeah. So... Yeah, I agree. She's she's a delight. And uh, she, under- she did like a pretty good too. Texas accent. Like it wasn't terrible. And she was actually like, tr- and then like Vanessa, Vanessa Ferlito shows up and she's just like being the same broad she is in every fucking movie <laughs> or TV show she's ever done. Like whether she's an FBI agent or a stripper or a Nobel laureate poet, she has the same fucking act every time. <laughs> Noble Lorian poet, really? Yeah, I, I don't know, dude. Just fuck, man. Just let me have uh, it. Just let me, just let me, just let me do it, <laughs> dude. You did it. Yeah, <laughs> you got me. Um, now what about what about the Nepo baby, Sydney Tamila Portier? Oh, yeah. Um, well, her character Sydney Portier was... liked himself so much he named his daughter Sydney Portier. That rules. Yeah, <laughs> you name your daughter Johnny. <laughs> She's like Johnny the sixth. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh, like George Foreman? I just name all my kids John. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I yeah. don't know. Like I know some people name their daughters James. Like Blake Lively named one of the, one of their her daughters James. That's my daughter's middle name. Yeah. So you can yeah. do that with James. I don't think you can really do it with John. No, probably not. It's not one of. Yeah, them. and you know, not to. I I I don't know. Not to be one way or the other about it, but it, usually it's men will name their sons after themselves, but. Rarely will a man name their daughter after them. I'd never so, heard of it up to yeah. up till now. But like, yeah. I think her character was kind of supposed to be awful, so mm. she kind of played it well. Little self-involved, yeah. Little, uh, and then she had a little like, which I didn't really focus on the first few times I've watched this movie. She's got this little like side text going on with this guy she's interested in, and I don't know why that was included if it was to show that. She sort of had her mind on other things and not what was going on. I don't know. It just seemed... Yeah, I think some of the un- stuff... It seemed it, unnecessary. I think I it might have just been for characterization or it might have just... Maybe their night would have gone differently if yeah. he had shown up. Or maybe it wouldn't have. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, could be. I don't know. But yeah, that uh, that first group I thought was good. And I, you know, I enjoyed what they offered. But <clears throat> And gruesome deaths, man. Yeah, Jeez. I mean, that's really what it was all building up towards. It was like they were showing what these girls were like on a typical get-together for them and, like, characterizing them. And then I guess when you punctuate how long and drawn out that all is with just how sudden and violent their deaths are, maybe yeah. that's kind of what was the the goal there. But I just struggled with that a little bit in the first leg of it. Because, like, the movie doesn't even really start for me until Kurt Russell shows up. Yeah, that's fair. Like you, you like yeah. these girls talking about how they're like they they're gonna go out and like try to scab free drinks off guys, but they're going to that cabin, so they can't bring yeah. guys there. 
and it's like it's like I I don't care about any of that. But yeah, I yeah, and yeah, I guess the whole idea of it is really not too deep. Is the fact that like a lot of these classic, you know, slasher movies. If you think about like whether it's Halloween or it's Friday the Thirteenth, a lot of it are you know groups of women or teenagers or young twenties or whatever drinking, getting stoned, and then their guards are down and then they get picked off and their loose morality is is punished yeah and then he he like does some gnarly moves where he blows past them at first and they're just sort of like in their vibe with their tunes and their everything and then he does that 180 shuts the lights off and he just starts revving the engine and uh just that moment where they flash and keep showing it over and over to show each death individually was like Tarantino's like, now this girl's going to get a wheel that's going to peel her face off. And this girl's leg is getting completely cut off and we're going to see it bouncing in the road, like the leg and jaws. And then this girl, like, it's just like one girl gets the glass all through her face and just like, just complete annihilation. And then he goes to the hospital and he gets off because, like they showed us earlier, he's just drinking club soda. So their blood alcohol contents are up. They're uh, high on weed. And he claims that, you know, it was them that you veered off to him or, or what have you. And he gets off. And we don't need to go deeper than that. But that's sort of how he gets uh, away with this shit. And, yeah, and the, uh, co- and the cop played by the late, great Michael Parks. Like, he knows it's bullshit. But yeah, it but just, he can't do anything about it. But he just kind of like... he. he he does the whole like, well, they, he just won't do it in Texas anymore. That that it, it they're in Tennessee in the next scene. He's in Tennessee next day on the map. fourteen yeah. months and later. I don't I don't know if this is true, but apparently there's a deleted scene of him with his car flipped over and he starts jacking it. Yeah, I heard that too. Uh, Been a little, but little on the nose, a little too on the nose, especially with it gets referred to later that he sort of like gets off on this. And that's yeah, that was his, that was his uh, hypothesis that for, yeah. his, for a motive. Yeah, so then he he tucks out, gets a new car, and goes to Tennessee this time, and uh, goes after all these other girls. So, uh, but I liked I liked how the movie ended because I was I remember seeing it in the theater, not really sure how it was going to work out because you never know with Tarantino. Like he'll he'll surprise you with his ending sometimes, and like sometimes he'll his movie will have a nice um, narrative. And then he'll take certain scenes, whether it's in the beginning of the movie or the end of the movie, and just make it just complete, unrealistic chaos. Like, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, it's about real events, but he changes history. And and then at the end, he's using blowtorches and flamethrowers and stuff. And it's just like complete madness. I really need to watch that movie again. It's really good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then this one, you know, it turns into just they beat his ass. And it ends with a nice uh, sweeping heel down to his skull by uh, Rosario Dawson. Yeah, that, I mean that—that's a very um, kind of textbook ending for some of the, like some of these movies that came out during that time, like the very like rah rah type of like beat em up like feel good ending. That that would happen sometimes from the movies, Except- I, the few I've seen. The off-screen ending for Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character probably wasn't as pleasant. <laughs> I can't imagine it was, but <laughs> yeah, that they, they just took they just took that tall drink of water in a cheerleading outfit and just left her with some dude. Yeah, 
<clears throat> and with the promise that they were going to bring the car back and that car is not in good shape. So what do you think? Are, are you a fan of car chases, stunt uh, chases and that sort of thing? It really depends on the car chase. Like I, um, I'm going to, I'm going to say this and I'm not trying to go for a hot take beat, but because I hate those. This is something I genuinely believe and I'm not trying to just get people fired up, but people always talk oh about bullet. Like how bullets, mm. like they're the greatest car chases ever filmed, and every car chase is like borrowing from Bullet. I fell asleep during one of the Bullet car chases. Oh, it was like watching. The, like you ever watch the Rockford Files, that old TV no. show with James Garner on it? In it, no. Every episode, they would have some excuse for him to get in this long, protracted uh, chase in his. I think what did he drive? He drove like a Camaro or or something like that. And, but it was these long, like these wide establishing shots with no music. And they'd go on for like two or three minutes, which and I, every time, like I went through this thing where I was trying to watch the Rockford Files because I heard it was a classic show. And every time they would do a car chase, I'd fucking pass out when I was watching it. It didn't matter <laughs> what time of day it was when I was watching it. Like it'd be the middle of the day. And I just conk right out because it's like, it's just, it's just boring. Like, in this movie, I know they took a lot of lengths to make the car chases, no CGI, like, few ca- like as few cameras as possible to get the best angles, to re- and long, long takes. Plus, you have a genuine stunt woman hanging on the hood, and you know it's her the whole time. Right. So it adds this whole dimension of anxiety to all the, <clears throat> all the sequels, like, that really long chase sequence. Uh- and and a sense of just genuineness to it. Yeah. You know? Like, because she was on that hood for such a long time, and it is one of the longest car chases in history, and there is a lot of action. There's very little of these down moments. And I think for for some people, I think you would think like, man, I, I don't want this to stop. Like, this is pretty cool. And they, they change it up a bit in terms of who has the momentum, who doesn't. He thinks he gets away. And then all of a sudden he gets blindsided. Like, there's a lot of twists and turns throughout that whole thing. In addition to the characters bringing what they have to bring to the table. And it's like, you always watch these car chases and you're like, well, why don't they just hit the brakes? Like, why are they trying to go toe to toe with this guy in the highway now for all places? It's just like, it's just a wild moment in the movie that for an hour and 20 minute movie or whatever it is, you know, about one sixth of it is this chase. And we build up to that. Um, and it's, it's funny because you get this guy, stuntman Mike, who's this total piece of shit. And then he gets into that thing where everybody who gets caught doing something shitty, he's like, I'm sorry. I was just playing around. I was just playing around. They're like, fuck this guy. Yeah, dude. He acted like, I mean, I've never been shot before. And I I imagine it's very painful. But, like, he couldn't have been a bigger bitch about the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. I think that was a pretty brave acting choice, too. Where he went from being, and it's, you know, he goes from being this kind of glib, you know, psycho. Who, when he thinks he's controlling the situation and he's, like, calling himself a wolf and... Stuff like that. Like, like he has that line. I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was like, I I may be a wolf, but I'm not stalking you. I think he said to her, the first, like he said to Arlene when they were like, like mm-hmm. the first group of girls. But so yeah. he's like, he thinks he's totally in control of that situation. And then when he's not, he's like, he's just like crying. And he's like going like, oh God, why? <laughs> like just, 
like it's it, it's there's like nothing uh, macho about any of that. It's like that awesome line from The Dark Knight. Like in people's final moments, they show you who they really are. Yeah, yeah. it always comes back to The Dark Knight, doesn't it? Fucking a. <laughs> um, yeah. So I I kind of liked that because it does show that he's really just this worm who uh, you know if he was put in, in a situation where he had to be in a level playing field he's kind of a bitch yeah it's like he's not it it doesn't make the villain too cool like he's cool in that scene up until like that first scene he's like he does the whole thing he does the whole like john wayne thing like i actually have a book you're okay in my book yeah right 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 yeah and there's nods like i apparently you know, when he sort of looks at the camera and does that smile before he gets in the car, before killing Rose McGowan, you know, it gives that classic Kurt Russell smile uh, is a nod to like Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Like, you, yeah, I saw that. that I didn't pick up on that. Like I knew, I had to know him looking directly at the camera like that had to be some kind of reference because that's one of the things about this movie. It is just loaded with references to Quentin Tarantino's work, to other things. Like there's a giant poster of Bridget Bardot that he just had put in the girl's apartment for some reason, just to say that there was a giant Bridget Bardot part p- poster in his movie. Um, <laughs> well, it, isn't it fair to say that I don't, I'm not saying I'm an expert on all movies and all uh, eras of movies and stuff, but it seems at least with the stuff that they've been referencing here with most of these movies, the guy with the car is usually the good guy and that you're rooting for the guy with the cool car who has a cool look and stuff like that. And this sort of subvert, subverts that because, you know, Smokey and the Bandit, you think of Burt Reynolds. Um, you can go through, like, Bullet or even Dukes of Hazard, And it's like, those are, the, those are the good guys, the ones with the cool car. It's the bad guys have the shitty Buick or whatever. And in this movie, it's like, no, the guy with the cool car is, the, is our bad guy. And then until these girls also get the cool car, he's invincible. And then once they level the playing field, it's game on. And it just, like, I think this movie's sort of, like, flipped us uh on our backs especially after what we see him do with the first set of girls who were sort of used to vault up these next set of girls now i only say this like if if any other movie maker filmmaker made this movie i don't think i would try to get as deep on it but tarantino i think always does things with a purpose because he believes in storytelling so i i think while he likes the gags and stuff i think it was important to show uh stuntman mike execute his plan perfectly the first time around so that when he does get beaten the second time it sort of has that payoff whereas if it was just one set of girls and we don't see him succeed ever then we're like oh that guy was just a bitch (laughs) but we've seen him what he's capable of doing which also increases the level of fear because with tarantino maybe the good guys won't win maybe he just does it again and we get a different version of it and then the movie ends well one thing i, I kind of made a note of when i was watching it this time was it was clear that the second time we're seeing him do this that he's way more out of control than he was the first time like and that's a pretty common i don't i don't know i don't, I'd probably i guess a lot more people are watching shows and movies about serial killers and stuff and that's all that's always a pretty common trajectory for a lot of like people who engage in this kind of deviant behavior it's like they spiral out of control that's what gets them caught or killed Mm. and Mm. it it, it's kind of interesting because if you look at the the two things like where he like the first like the first group of girls it was like everything was like he was so patient and 
he set it up just the way he wanted and they were as you said their guard was down because they were they'd been drinking all night and smoking weed and this time it was like he went after a moving car in broad daylight that was like the same class of old school muscle car as his you know i don't know which one's better on paper the 69 charger or the 70 challenger but mm-hmm. um that's a good point like if you look at those two contrasts it's like it it, but that's kind of what i thought of it's like man it was like that was much stupider to do compared to the other the 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 first thing which like a much more controlled environment that's a good point because now i'm thinking about what you brought up before about how he was like sort of shadow stalking arlene and the other girls and she noticed his car but not enough to be scared where she's doesn't give him a lap dance, but well, she didn't then... want to be chicken shit. I mean, right, right. I mean, yeah, her, her fucking neighbors in the Bronx or Staten Island or wherever the hell she's from would never let her live it down. Uh, sounds Brooklyn. About oh, Brooklyn, okay. Brooklyn, but then the second time around, like he's licking Rosario Dawson's toes and like pretending he's dropping his keys, and it's like. Tarantino, can you just pull back a little bit with the feet stuff, man? He's like, all right, now here's what you're going to do, okay? <laughs> Rosario's going to have her beautiful feet sticking out of the car, okay? And all the windows are down because they don't have the door frames like that. So it's a, it's a wide open canvas, okay? And you're going to go up and you're going to lick her toes. And, and, and then you're going to pretend to drop your keys, okay? Ready? And roll one and action. <laughs> Kurt like, like, he's like, really? Like, I, I got to lick her toes? He goes home that night. Goldie Hawn's like, get the fuck away from me until you brush your teeth and use some mouthwash. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. it's like, it's a pretty it's a pretty stark... Co- when you look at the two seeds, like, back-to-back... Well, I mean, they're not back-to-back. When you think about them sequentially, it's like it's like it's two totally different things. It's the same guy yeah. with the same MO, but it's just, like, just a lot less composed in the second one. Yeah. Yeah, and then I didn't. I wasn't familiar with a bunch of the cast members in this movie, um, like Tracy Toms. I I don't. Yeah, really I don't her. know who she is, and I think she was in Rent or something. I think he. She was like a cheaper Wanda Sykes. I think for him, to, <laughs> for him to get in this movie. Um, but I, you know, I thought she was fine. But yeah, Zoe Bell, I think stole it. Um, and Rosario Dawson's. I I love Rosario Dawson, so I thought she was really good. Um, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, like, didn't have, like, the biggest part, but you got to see Mary Elizabeth Winstead in a cheerleader outfit, so, you know, I think that works. Zang. <laughs> um, what do you think about the Tarantino cameo, though? You touched on it a bit. Do you like when he pops in in these movies, or it depends on the movie? Oh, it's definitely, I definitely take it on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Yeah, like, this one didn't really deliver for you. No, this one I thought was fine. Like, I thought, like, <laughs> I thought his funniest line was when he was was when uh, Stuntman Mike was talking to Pam and he and he just he just says, yeah, but I'm Stuntman Mike. Ask anybody. And she asks him and from off camera. He just goes, she's like, who's this guy? He's like, Stuntman Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> like, I did like that. Yeah. Like, it's pretty natural. Yeah. And, and then, like, he did he did kind of have the thing where he, he was making people do shots of chartreuse, which is fucking hilarious. Because <laughs> you ever had it? No, it's like I don't. I mean, I don't think so. It's it's kind of like from the same family of liqueurs as like Jägermeister. Like it's made with a shitload of herbs and stuff, but it's like a hundred and ten proof. Like you use it as a base for like really stiff cocktails. Like you don't just shoot that stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> and apparently, there's a shortage of it right now. 
I'm told. Oh, damn. So if you see, yeah. see a bottle of chartreuse, just buy it and hang on to it. Maybe you could like flip it for a small profit later. Shit. I don't even know, know, know if that's true. But that th- that comment you made about the cool guys having cars, we'll have to have our uh, who's ra- who's starting to become our uh, community fact checker, Andy LGR. We'll have to have we'll have to ask him because he was mm. he uh, he chimed in on X on Twitter about the uh, our <clears throat> inability to identify James Bond's pre mortem or post mortem one liners. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, I'm not gonna make excuses for it, but you know, you're talking and you just can't say so you just can't think of everything. But yeah, I, I do. We do appreciate the contribution. We and it's also a shout out. You know, if you wanna follow us on Twitter at Just the Movies, Instagram Just yeah. like the Movies Pod. But yeah, we do. Which, we do look at the stuff on there. It's not like there's just a massive volume of it, but we do see it. And we, yeah, we like absolutely. to acknowledge it once in a while. So thanks, Andy. Yeah, and uh, I I found it interesting how. Like stuntman Mike is clearly um, of a different era, and we don't know anything about him, which I love. Uh, I you know we don't really need to know too much about this character's backstory. I think movies would be better to do that more often than not. Not every character needs a fully fleshed out like how they got here, which I feel like some filmmakers do too much today. But he's there, and he's got his sort of like tacky looking jacket on, and his big hair, his classic Kurt Russell, you know, quaff. And then you got Eli Roth and like this other guy who was like trying to mack it to the girls, like just talking shit about him as he's hammering his nachos and he's just minding his business. And he, he, he's clearly, he clearly hear them, but it's not one of those things where like, he knows he's like, I, I got a mission. I know what I got to do tonight. I can't get all fucked up by beating these two assholes up. He's like, I'm going to eat my nachos, keep my mouth shut. And then I'm going to go kill those women, you know? <laughs> And it's just like, I don't know what what the the point of that scene was. It was maybe just show how douchey those guys were who were trying to pick up the girls. Or maybe, you know, him getting set off more knowing that they were hanging out with guys like that. You don't know what the motivations are. But I always feel like Tarantino throws scenes in for a reason. And I, I just wanted to get your take on that. Why do you think they tossed that in there? I, I think it had more to do with... Um... I don't have, like, a clear answer, but I, I just think it had more to do with the fact, like, why show the fact that, you know, Jungle Julia is, is interested in this film director and she's texting him and he's not going to show up. And then these guys are, you know, they're circling around, but the girls aren't interested. I think it's just more, like, characterization, but also to show that, you know, maybe if those if those guys had gotten involved and, like, split the girls up, it would have fucked the whole thing up. I don't know True. for sure. Like that, that that's just speculation on my part. I wanted to ask you something though. Um Yeah. I, I I don't know why this occurred to me, but I just I do you think this movie kind of lost something by being set in a contemporary time where there are cell phones and things like that, as opposed to being set like in the period it's trying to emulate? Um I mean maybe. I, you know, sometimes when I watch this movie, like I have to remind myself that it's set in contemporary times because, you know, it like they physically went in and actually scratched the film to make it look old in an authentic sense, as opposed to adding digital effects. They Mm -hmm. actually went in and physically marked up the film. The cars are old. The bars are old enough looking where you can easily like get your mind thinking that this is, you know, late 70s or what have you. Um and I'm just trying to think, like, aside from maybe, like, some of their 
apartments or the, the the trip to the convenience store or whatever like it feels pretty analog like i don't remember the girls like did they not have cell phones when they were in the car could they not have called the police like you know yeah i, I, I just i i don't know what the case was there and i'm kind of happy that i w- didn't even think about it to be honest with you yeah so, i don't know why that occurred to me it was just kind of irked me a little bit like that they it's a fair it's a fair question cuz he does that a lot with his movies and it's what's funny about tarantino is like once upon a time in hollywood is a, a period piece so to speak cuz it takes place in the 70s uh but then you have this movie uh or jackie brown which are more modern based that that feel like they're taking place you know, decades ago. So he mixes it up a lot. Um, but it's a good question. I don't I don't know that I would have enjoyed this movie any more or less if it took place in the 70s. The only thing I would think of is that maybe it's easier for Stuntman Mike to get away with that shit in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, uh, the idea that this movie is a slasher movie with a car is interesting, among yeah. other things. I mean, there's lots of interesting things about this movie, but like that... Um, I don't know. The did you hear the the genesis of the whole thing? Like how Quentin Tarantino kind of came up with the idea. I, I I did lay it on lay it on them. Apparently, Quentin Tarantino and Sean Penn are good friends, which doesn't fit with like that doesn't make sense to me at all. Because I I I just don't think like Quentin Tarantino. Like if I was having a conver- if I was having a conversation with him and he's just talking about all these old like it would be like the dialogue from this movie. He'd be talking about these obscure bands and these old ass TV shows and he'd just be trying to have like a really good time. And then I think about Sean Penn who like thinks he's a fucking diplomat. I don't know how those two guys hang out. But they probably just like the same drugs. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe it Maybe that's the that levels of playing field, but but I digress. The 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 issue they were hanging out. They were like hanging out in a hotel. They were having like a hotel night. I don't know how often they do that, uh, but <laughs> I imagine the hotel's very nice, being that they're yeah. millionaires. But they uh, uh, Tarantino was talking about buying a new car. And he said he wanted to get a Volvo because he didn't want to die in a car crash. And then Sean Penn said, for like 10 or 15 grand, a stunt team could death-proof your car for you. And then that's like where the whole idea spun out of his head. And then Robert Rodriguez was the one who said, you have to call it death-proof. Even though... It's a great name. Yeah, it has that that title card in the the beginning where it it says it's the Thunder... It's Quentin Tarantino's Thunderbolt. Because that used to, that's another thing that used to happen on these like old schlocky movies was like they would make mistakes like that. Like old titles would get left in. Yeah, yeah, old frames and weren't edited out. Yeah, transition. But I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, frames, it just shows yeah. you how creative Quentin Tarantino is because he took that one thing and spun it into this whole movie. And don't don't assume it was a ritzy hotel. I mean, I'm sure Tarantino likes his lavishness, but like if he's smoking dope with like Sean Penn and talking about like fucking Volvos and shit. It wouldn't shock me if he was like, this was the first hotel ever built on the Hollywood Strip. Or, yeah, or it's like that hotel in New York that's like the worst, it's like the worst hotel in Manhattan. And that's the only reason it stays in business. Because people just go there out of morbid curiosity. To st- and they'll pay like $200 a night to stay there or whatever it costs. Dude, like going to drink at McSorley's. Yeah. Or like, yeah, some, I guess there is some kind, sometimes a draw just to go to a place just because it's grimy. Like just. Or, yeah, just to know that like, you know. People over a hundred years ago used to come in here and drink, you know. Or, or you're totally off base, and they were just the fucking Chateau Marmont, like every other Hollywood asshole. 
<laughs> you're probably right, actually. I think Tarantino likes to. I just think. Uh, I mean, that's that's such a put funny, out a certain image. Yeah, I mean, that's such a funny story to me though, because it's such an odd pairing. Like, I just think Sean Penn takes himself so seriously, and Quentin Tarantino. Like, I know Quentin Tarantino takes filmmaking seriously. But he doesn't seem to take himself that seriously. I, I don't know if you see the if everybody sees the distinction or not. Yeah, like Sean, like they're hanging out, and Sean Penn's like, "Hey, man, tomorrow I'm uh, gonna fly out to Haiti. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have someone take a picture of me giving food to dirty people, <laughs> and then I'm gonna take then, a private jet back. Yeah, I'll be back in like two days. We'll do this again." <laughs> Like I just I can't picture Quentin Tarantino like writing Matt Stone and Trey Parker a sternly worded letter because they made fun of him on South Park. <laughs> like I, I I can't imagine Quentin Tarantino doing that, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Again, maybe maybe it's like the hotel thing. Maybe I'm wrong about that too. Hey, uh, Sean Penn doesn't like he has a reputation, right, of like just being kind of an asshole. Sure. Yeah. I mean. It, I don't know. Like, anytime I like, I just don't really like Sean Penn. I don't know what it is. I just don't. So, and I like Tarantino, and I like how Tarantino like. I like how he pushes back against like cancel culture. I like how he pushes back against people like who are like, "Why are your movies so violent?" And he's like, "Cause it's fun." Okay, <laughs> it's just like he's he's like honestly a rebellious filmmaker. And I know that sounds cheesy to say because he's a filmmaker and he's rich and shit, but he just does whatever the fuck he wants to do. And he has always sort of done it that way. And he likes to tell stories he wants to tell. And he always encourages people, if you're going to make a movie, create something that we've never seen before. You know? And in this world that we live in where everything's a reboot or a remake or a sequel or you know, an adaptation of uh, a European version. It's not just movies, man. It's video games too. Like I heard they're doing Mortal Kombat one again. It's like, Oh, I know. I know TV, the office, one of the biggest shows in American history is a remake of the English version. It's just like, so he, he stands out. And I know a lot of people don't like, there's a lot of people just don't uh, like Quentin Tarantino movies because they're either too violent or they're too long or, you know, whatever. But I think for people who do like his movies, he's like a person, even though he's massively successful and he's reached the mountaintop, you still, I still find myself like rooting for him and like, sort of like, he's sort of like the, the voice of like guys who like old movies in, in, in an industry that's like full of like further and further pushing and not to get political, but like this just like leftist, like far left wing bullshit in Hollywood that I think is like a, a just a gross place and a gross industry. And I, I, I just feel like, and it, yeah, I'm not saying he's uh conservative or anything like that. Neither am I, but you know what I mean about Hollywood? It's not a fucking mystery. Yeah. Not it's to get political, like, but like, yeah, it, it's the, you know, people that you would have called liberal 15 years ago are like Ronald Reagan compared to some of these people. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Like, so look what happened with Bill Maher. Like, Bill Maher tried to go with that, and it just got too insane for him. So now he's, like, he's speaking out against all of it. Yeah, it's crazy how far it gets. And it gets that way on both sides. But I guess, you know, not to get, again, not to get political on it at all, because I don't even fucking get involved in politics anymore because I don't like my stress levels getting elevated. So, um, but Tarantino is just sort of, like, 
he's he's different and I, i'm almost surprised that he won a best uh director uh oscar for pulp fiction because i feel like he doesn't necessarily fit in with the hollywood elite and how he operates um so i don't know I, i'll always like tarantino that's why when you brought up like how he's thinking about what he wants to do in cast for his final film and uh, i'm like final film like that kind of sucks man especially like with all the movies that come out today, like you need a Tarantino movie every few years. Yeah, but you've heard the soundbite about his rationale, right? Like it's kind—you of, gotta kind of respect it. He's like, he's like, isn't this the time to do it? Like, would you still, would people still think you have gas in the tank as opposed to just you're just done? And then people are like, yeah, you should have hung it up like two movies I ago. See, I see that. The, it's it's like, the whole burnout do- versus fade away uh, argument. Oh, so you want him to? put a shotgun in his mouth <laughs> metaphorically man oh uh no i see what you mean like seinfeld did that he got offered like hundreds of millions of dollars yeah, i think that number keeps going up it's like when you tell stories about my junk like it just the number just keeps going up every time i hear that story it's like you know seinfeld turned down like 8.9 billion dollars to do one <laughs> season of seinfeld it's like i don't think that number's right i think that's a little inflated how about John Elway retiring after two Super Bowls? Um, like, could he have gone for a third? Could Jordan have gone for a four-peat? It's like, you know, you don't know. And then you have people who maybe do stick around too long, like Aaron Rodgers. And then look what happens. But I I did not like seeing that. Whatever you think no. of Aaron Rodgers, like, that that was... No, I, and I like Aaron Rodgers, and I my dad's a Jets fan. I, I'm not a Giants fan who doesn't like the Jets. Like, I want, I want my dad to be able to see the Jets win a Super Bowl. And they would have had a shot this year with Aaron Rodgers, but who knows? But anyway, back to Death Proof. Uh, Mike, did you have a favorite moment or scene in this movie? Um, I mean, to me, the movie is like I read a criticism of it one time that I kind of agreed with that the movie's just a lot of talking punctuated by two flawless action sequences. So yeah. <laughs> it's it's definitely not any of the scenes where the girls are talking. So that basically just leaves the car chase, which is like 20 minutes long. That's, I mean, that's really it. But I mean, it had, the movie had its moments outside of that. Don't get me wrong. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really have like a, like, I think I, like I, I, I told a little anecdote about it. That was meandering as they usually are, but I got back to the point at least that time. But like, for some reason, I just thought that was so funny with the way they built up the thing about Zoe's character, well, Zoe playing herself, her dramatized version of herself, and then you think she's dead, and she pops up and just goes, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. Then they- she's very charming. Yeah. Yeah, what about you? Um, Like I say, it's got to be when he tells Pam that her time is up. Yeah. And the go, go left instead of go right. That whole moment is just terrifying and horrifying, and I thought was just like one of those... Like, if you show a reel of, of Kurt Russell's career, like, that moment could definitely pop in there. Uh, it's just, like, I, I could see if this movie was a little more successful, that's, like, an, that's like a very one of those cool, iconic type of movie moments for me. I really enjoyed that. Um, and then also just the fact that, you know, I saw this movie. I, w- I don't want to spoil it because it's rather new, but it's called Barbarian. Have you seen that movie? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it yet, though. Check it out. I don't. I want to just because I want to see what you think about it. <clears throat> but you know, I'm not like the biggest horror fan to begin with. No, yeah, I so. know that. Um, yeah, you might not like it, but I, the reason why I bring it up is because 
I sometimes like when a movie shifts on you and like all of a sudden like we're in this movie and we're watching these four characters and we think like at least I think when I'm sitting in that theater in 2007 like all right so these are going to be the four characters that he's going to go after or whatever and I don't think I realized unless I forgot that they were going to die and then all of a sudden like you're 40 minutes into this movie or however long it is and those four girls die and you're like where the fuck is this thing going now yeah so i i like that aspect of it too because i think that is a unique thing in movies that is not done often is sort of sub- subverting that uh your cast of characters and almost like hit and reset um so i like the two stories juxtaposed against one another because you bring up the good point about how stuntman mike sort of got a little sloppy um with round two but I think, like I said, seeing his execution with round one and how well he pulled that off gets away with it. It just immediately makes the second story that much more dreadful because you're like, I know how this is going to end for them. They don't know it, but we just saw it. And then they flip it again on you and they have the girls sort of like beat his ass. So I, I liked its twists and turns. I agree, maybe a little too wordy at times. He got a little too much with his... Uh, single shot around a diner table thing. He tried to redo the Reservoir Dogs bit to to less of uh, less charm because the story wasn't as funny. Like the like a virgin thing is just fucking hysterical, right? But overall, I enjoyed the movie because of its peaks, um, and uh, I just I find it to be a very unique movie. And then yeah, the last twenty minutes is just so action packed and intense. Uh, how can you not love that? So, I kind of want to get my hands on the theatrical version and see if that that makes a difference. Because I, there were points where I was like suffering, and I, I, you know, I knew what was coming, so I held in there. But it was yeah. just, I, I just, I was like, man, I mean, this this movie really kind of drags at parts. And I, it's not like I have a, a crystal clear memory of it in the theater. I remember certain things, but I remember like that that whole missing real bit was something that. Because Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez used to host these double feature nights at, I think at Quentin Tarantino, one of their houses, I don't know. But that was something that actually happened in, in cinemas in the 70s, but it was something they tried, a tradition they tried to keep going, and I guess that was, they got their hands on this really obscure Italian crime movie that had the late, great Oliver Reed in it, and there was a real missing, and that actually happened, so they put that bit when they did when they did this movie, they decided to put that bit in there, and they did it pretty well. As I I, I thought, I, I thought that was one of the best jokes of the movie. Like they're about to show, it's like, oh, stop, man, Mike's about to get a lot about to get a lap dance, missing real, and then they're in the fucking yeah. parking lot talking. Um, yeah, like yeah. I wanted to get, circle back to one thing, and then we'll you know kind of keep the discussion moving forward because I wanted to mention it about Quentin Tarantino, like how you, you, you your opinion about his career, how he's kind of a iconoclast. You know, he seems to be kind of doing things his own way. Like, it's really cool because he, like, another thing is he just seems to be this guy that managed to take all of his interests and, like, just make a career out of it. Like, his love of obscure movies and music. Like, the jukebox in the movie is his jukebox. Right. Like, those yeah. are his records. It, it's yeah. like It's like as opposed to if I made a movie... It would be like, why is is Russ Meyer alive, and why are so many people shooting each other? <laughs> that's that's all. <laughs> it's just a bunch of buxom women firing weapons at people, <laughs> and I'm watching it. I'm like, this is the best fucking thing I've ever seen. 
<laughs> the Godfather is bullshit compared to this. <laughs> uh, I feel like you're talking about the fembots, basically. No, I'm talking more about like God. There was a movie where they did do that. They had it was part of their like shtick. It's kind of like Terran Tactical in real life. Like their shtick is you go there and there's like hot women shooting guns and they teach you how to shoot guns. That's like part of their business model. Nice. Yeah, I mean, just imagine like just some some structurally unsound woman in a tank top shooting like a fully automatic rifle. <laughs> structurally unsound. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have too much else. Uh, I, I figured this was going to be on the shorter end. Um, but I, you did bring up the music and I do have to say like anytime I catch a Tarantino movie and there's a catchy song in it that I hadn't heard of, that's probably 50 years old. I'm like, fuck, I'm not, I wish I was as well-versed as Tarantino. I can't, I can't stop listening to that chick habit song from the closing credits. Like I'll yeah, put, dude. I put that shit on like like ever ever I like for the last week every chance I get I put that on somewhere. Yeah, it's really good <laughs> with those yeah. old and school then, horns. Yeah, yeah, and then the song I think Tarantino said is it his favorite song or something? The Down in Mexico, which I believe is the song playing during the strip. Yep, tease. Yep, that's during the um, lap dance scene. Yeah, there's that one. And then there's another song. Um, there's like a Burt Bacharach song on the soundtrack. Uh, and there's... I forget what song was playing when the girls get killed. But I thought that was a pretty good song. Oh, too. that was the yeah. thing I'll never remember. The the uh, Dave D. Dozy Mitch and Titch or something. That was the band that supposedly Pete Townsend was going to join if he when he was going to quit The Who. Oh, okay. Hold tight. Is that yeah, that song? There's a weird story where the guy who started that band was a um, he was a police officer, and some famous musician in 1960 got killed in a car accident, and they he had his guitar with him, and he they he it got impounded, and he like he practiced guitar on that. And he ended up starting a band. Oh wow! Yeah, pretty pretty mm -hmm. weird. I can't remember the the old musician's name but uh that was supposedly the story behind how that band started and like again that's a band i've never heard of and never would have save for the fact that it was in a quentin tarantino movie right yeah and yeah i'm just trying to look at so april march is the artist yeah. of chick habit eddie cochran uh, was the guitar player who died in the track i don't i don't know if anybody would know who that is because i certainly don't but just for your edification <laughs> Okay, so yeah, April, March, born Eleanor Blake. I mean, a weird career. Uh, she worked on a Madonna movie. She was an animator for Archie Comics and Pee Wee's Playhouse. Uh, and then all of a sudden, here she is popping up in the Tarantino movie with a very throwback sort of like... When was that song um, recorded? I mean, it had to have been recorded... I don't know in the eighties, like because it has that old school fifties sound. Yeah, it to sounds it. That, really. It's that, like live to that win. Mono. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let, guess guess when this was recorded? I don't know. Nineteen eighty four, two thousand six. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. So yeah, it says Marsh developed and performed an English translation of the Serge Gainsbourg song. 
Les Tombères Les Filles Les renamed as Chick Habit. The song has been featured in the 1999 comedy But I'm a Cheerleader and in Tarantino's 2007 Death Proof. Oh, but I'm a che- used- that was the one where Natasha Leone finds out she's a lesbian. That's an interesting movie. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Isn't she a lesbian in real life now? I think I think so. I don't I'm not sure. All right. But in that movie that's the thing. It's like she's a cheerleader and that's her that's her it's like I can't be a I can't be a lesbian. I'm a cheerleader. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh yeah. It, it, she's even collaborated with people from the the Beach Boys, Ronnie Spector, who I love. Uh very cool. So you could tell where the influence came from for the sound. Almost like who's that? Who's that artist who? Uh, Amy Winehouse, sort of like like that throwback nineteen fifties pinup mono tone, mono uh, sonically mono sounding um, classic like r- records. Mm. Uh, that is a catchy song though, Chick Habit. I gotta say, and it's a cool way to end that movie. But Tarantino always throws those tracks in there. That I was like, a part of Tarantino that's very underrated is he introduces me to songs that i end up liking that i never probably would have found otherwise i think he was a dj at some point because early in his career like he wrote like he played a part where he was a dj and that he's always like mentioning djs and there's always radio stations in yeah, like his true. contemporary movies anyway that yeah that's true uh, so i, I don't he worked i, I should, he worked in a video store right yeah he worked in a video that. store but he could have been yeah. he, he also worked at a stag theater and oh really? yeah that's what he said he said he worked at a stag theater. That's like because apparently that version of Down in Mexico is a really rare record, and that's how he found out. He showed it to some guy that he worked with at this uh, stag theater. But, um, yeah, just to kind of uh, put a put a pin in the grindhouse thing. Like this movie, you know, this movie obviously isn't going to have much of a legacy outside of being. You know, this is actually Quentin Tarantino. He said it's like his worst movie, but he did say that before he made the Hateful Eight, though. <laughs> I don't think he, I I don't think he would say the Hateful Eight is his worst movie, but I would say it is by a mile. And I know that like not everybody would agree with that assessment, but like I just thought the Hateful Eight was a really bad movie. Um, yeah, I've no uh, for for whatever reason, just no interest to check check in with the Hateful Eight, <clears throat> especially after you just annihilating it. I mean, that's a that's a pretty damning indictment considering uh, all the glowing praise you've been heaping on Tarantino. And it, it, but you won't even give that movie a chance. That's that's pretty bad. But like the Grindhouse movies, they did have movies that they made from the fake trailers that were mm. varying degrees of entertaining. Kind of like like I'll, Machete, and they did do Hobo with a Shotgun, which I never saw. And I guess they, oh yeah, I guess Thanksgiving is gonna be. They were t- they they were threatening to make that movie for fifteen years, and I guess they're finally gonna make it. It's supposed to come out before which the end was of the, the year. One- which was the one with Nicolas Cage? Oh, that was so not <laughs> that was Nazi Nazi she wolves of the SS or something. Oh yeah, and see that would be a crazy movie, dude. When I one of the hardest laughs that that movie got in the theater, besides the Zoe Bell scene, that like people laughed during that, but that was more like a relief, like breaking the tension, but it was like still cute laugh because she was, you know, like I said, she was adorable in this film. But um, yeah. was when they were showing that fake trailer, and at the end, Nicholas Cage. It's like and Nicholas Cage as Fu Manchu, and he's like, oh, yeah, he's like, yeah. and he says he said something like insane, like this is my Mecca or something, and then he starts laughing like a dime store villain, and, I, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> just 
this is so ridiculous. Now, the, the now those trailers are on YouTube. Like people can probably look those up and like watch those. Right. Or even the yeah, the whole intermission. You can, probably. but I'm just gonna play the card. It's just not the same. Like no, you knew not. when you were seeing Grindhouse that you were seeing a double feature. You had no idea that there was gonna be this whole immersive thing with fake commercials. At like that were period accurate, and then you got these fake trailers that were in styles of movies that were popular at the time, right? And I don't, yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's something where I don't, I don't think anybody would ever take a chance on something like that again, unless it gets to the point where like people are so sick of all the reboots and the rehashes that some like somebody comes along. I don't know who it would be, but somebody comes along and decides to try to make this immersive experience that takes you back to a you know a different time. Yeah, true. I feel like more than ever, these studios are taking less and less risks and go for the sure thing. Not only that, Um, but on on kind of a side note, not to editorialize too much, but they're trying to pander to people who aren't going to give them money. Like, you're going to try to pander to, like, Gen Z and Gen Alpha. Like, they have all the entertainment they want on TikTok and YouTube, and it fits. And they don't have the attention span. For, like, a feature film. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Not to... I'm, I'm Fair commentary. As, as our demographic slowly ticks older now after that. Uh, no, nah, I'm kidding. Um, all right, man. Yeah, I don't have much else on this other than Kurt Russell is king <laughs> uh, and can do no wrong. And uh, Tarantino... I'll, I'll probably watch Hateful Eight. I just... After you shit on it, I was like, well, for some reason I missed that movie and now Mike shit on it. It's like, I don't know. I mean, it's not uh, Cloud Atlas, but I mean, it's pretty bad. Man, you really hate that I, fucking I movie. I do I, fucking hate that movie. I haven't seen that movie, so maybe I should watch that one. Something on my epitaph is going to involve how bad Cloud Atlas is. All right. That's cool. <laughs> I'm going to put a copy of that on fucking Laserdisc in your coffin. Just so it's bigger. Dude, I had this stupid bit one time where, like, I just, I thought it was the funniest. You know how, like, when you're at, you're somewhere where you're not supposed to laugh? Like, you're at work. Yeah. Like, you're at, you're at your goddamn cubicle at work, or you're in church, or like. Or, or like an Amy Schumer stand up show. <laughs> and you're just like, you're just trying to keep it buttoned up. But, like, for some reason, I'll never forget this. I, this popped in my head one time, and I, I was trying not to laugh at work. And I was thinking about, like, you know, you go to somebody's wake and it's very solemn and you, you go up to the casket and, like, you're, you're setting flowers on it. And then you just set a DVD copy of Space Chimps on somebody's casket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so Space fun. Chimps? Space Chimps, yeah. Why Space Chimps? Um, because I was watching a movie with a group of friends and uh, my one friend had this girlfriend that was not well liked by the group. I think you know who I'm talking about. And oh. we saw all these trailers for all these really good movies that were coming out. And then we saw a, tra- a trailer for this like Pixar ripoff movie called Space Chimps. And it was about... I'm looking up now. And... And then this 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 girl just goes. I hear her go. Oh, that looks good. <laughs> and that movie went on to make like ten million dollars or something. The box office is a huge. It was like one of those rare like computer CGI movies that are pointed at kids that managed not to do well. <laughs> 
the yeah i'm, I'm looking at it like now. andy the, samberg was like the voice of the main character i think larry david's wife from curb your enthusiasm was in it robert kennedy jr's real life oh for all the celebrity gosh. connections yeah it's like just the, it's like just a movie that just doesn't pass the eyeball test at all it's like you look at it, it's like oh that movie looks like it fucking sucks so i got you now <laughs> It says on July 18th, go bananas. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. It does not. That, that's what it says. And and believe it or not, Mike, they made a Space Chimps 2. Chimp harder. <laughs> Thanks for saving that, because I was actually really fucking annoyed when you told me no. that. <laughs> you want to you be really annoyed? No. No. Th- they actually did make a Space Chimps too. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I know. That's why I was annoyed. Because I knew. Oh, I, I was like, God, I can't believe they made a sequel to that. Uh, <laughs> Had to go straight Chimps. to DVD, right? Oh, I would imagine, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that brings us to the end of the Space Chimps podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if, if, if anyone's listening to this, and maybe sometimes you don't watch all the movies we talk about, go check out Death Proof. Especially if you like cool uh, car chase scenes. And Even though we spoiled the whole fucking thing, but watch it anyway. And, it's it's and Kurt Russell and good-looking women and uh, Tarantino. So um, yeah, that's it on that. So Mike, what are we gonna talk about next time as we delve into? We'll be in October. October Rust. Yeah, October. Um, I don't know. It's gonna be our seventieth episode, which I being that. The decisions we made early on and alternating picks like we do, I, I tend to get all these milestone picks because I have the even-numbered ones. Mm. I was um, kind of thinking... I, I have like My mind's all over the place. I have like a list of five movies I want to do, and I can't really decide which one I want to do because I, I kind of wanted to take a chance on another exploitation movie, but I kind of want to move away from that too, and I kind of want to do something a little different. Um... Of all the acclaimed directors that we've talked about, we haven't really done a uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film yet. <laughs> so I was thinking <laughs> we could kind of break that and uh, talk about Boogie Nights. Ooh. Wow. Uh, a lot of talk about large penis in that movie. Are you comfortable with that? Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of talk to you offline about that. <laughs> Keep it tasteful, keep it funny, but don't beat a dead horse, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, yeah, Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. I have not seen that in some time. Yeah, it was, uh, I know it's a little cheese dick. Like, I was like, I was thinking, oh, I could do a movie that came out in the 70s or that was set in the 70s, but, like, Boogie Nights was on my list. And I've been wanting to do it for a while, actually. I just wasn't sure. I just think... Plus, I just think he's like a big director, and I have kind of like a love-hate thing with him. But this is definitely like one of my favorite movies he's done. So, well, I'm glad I'm glad you didn't pick Punch Drunk Love. So we'll go with Boogie or Nights. Phantom Thread, which I couldn't even <laughs> fucking sit through. And that was supposedly like his swan song or something. Well, then he did Licorice Pizza, which I don't think that was received all that. Well oh, either. that was him. Yeah. I just remember hearing all this bullshit about licorice pizza. Like, it seemed like people... It sounded like something people were saying just so they sounded like they were cultured. Like, oh, licorice oh, pizza is no. so good. It's like, is it? <laughs> uh, critics liked it, but the movie fucking tanked. So, maybe speaking to what you were saying about how... You know, who who are they who are they making these movies for? 
But yeah, Boogie Nights is there's a lot to talk about in that movie for sure. That's a wild one. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy Kathleen a pair of roller skates after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Uh, good stuff. Anything else for uh, our folks out there? Oh man, take us home. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this pod about Tarantino's Death Proof and my love for all things Kurt Russell. Uh, and we'll see you next time, as always, likely in two weeks, as we talk about Dirk Diggler and uh, Amber the Waves the, and the hairpiece that Burt Reynolds is going to be rocking. <laughs> Um, but until next time, from me and Mike here at Just Like the Movies, make sure you subscribe to the show and tell your friends. And as always, be kind, rewind, relax, and we'll see you around. Chartreuse!